a tiny pottery vase, 2.5 centimetres high, with a painted blue flower and green leaves. I believe it is a forget-me-not. A yellow Tupperware pastry cutter, the smaller side a scalloped rectangle, used every year near Christmas for cutting windows in the lids of fruit mince pies. Pineapple fruit mince, bricks of sweetened shortcrust pastry, rows of circles stamped out with the rim of a Vegemite glass. Chubby fingers snatching the cut-out lit centres to scoff the sweet, raw pastry. In the 2020 article for Curator, the Museum Journal, Cathy Carbone writes that the question of the archive in contemporary art goes hand-in-hand with the question of memory in the archives. She asks, how does memory articulate or not in the archives? How does archival memory, or lack thereof, influence contemporary art-making? What kinds of memory work do artists do with archives? And what does this reveal about contemporary art practice? Carbone goes on to talk about the memory explosion, describing this as a preoccupation with memory, a thriving interdisciplinary an international concept, which is a discourse across academic, social and artistic fields. Following artist Ash's exhibition at Contemporary Art Tasmania earlier this year, I became interested in this nexus between art, the archive and memory, in particular the tension between now and then, the future, the left behind. This is something that's resonated with me personally. Since I became the keeper of family archives, photos, objects, paraphernalia, after losing both my parents and my grandmother in quick succession, what is it to be the archive keeper, the curator of objects and memories? And how do artists traverse these concepts in their own practices, concepts that are at once about the past and the future, and using material that is subjective and relational, but also deeply embedded in their own real mortal human lives? This is Ash. I mean, both my parents are still alive and my partner works in aged care and we have a lot of kind of older people. My mum had a stroke and became unwell. And I just, there was that moment of um, 2020 where she went from being um, a really active, capable, you know, 72-year-old to being really, you know, fragile in a moment and that she was on the floor for, you know, nine hours before anybody found her and on the cold tiles. And so for me, that was a really big kind of, you know, realization of mortality and this kind of idea of mothers don't die. A lot of the responsibility for my mum's care and, and stuff sort of fell on me. All of this managing and then these the legalities of like you know power of attorney medical power of attorney and the life stuff all of this really full-on stuff that you're kind of confronted with and you're like right okay and then how to sort of manage that becomes a really kind of systematic approach in some way too like okay where are these bills why you know and there's like all this unopened mail and like um so coming up with systems that are able that you're able to actually incorporate your day into being able to manage and and support her. So I guess that's where it all sort of kind of came from. And this is sort of like a processing of that in some way. A Pandora bracelet with 23 silver charms. Some charms are layered with blown glass in shades of pink and green. Some have pink or green gemstones. 
a silver swan and a silver daisy, both gifted by me. Excruciatingly unoriginal Mother's Day or birthday gifts, yet guaranteed to bring joy. The kind of jewellery I stand in vehement opposition to, yet a reluctant adolescent promise not to pull it apart and turn it into something else. Aisha's exhibition at CAT, These Two Sharp Halves, invited viewers to contemplate the human experience of ageing, referencing bureaucratic systems as emblematic of loss of connection with self and community. The exhibition featured framed images of legal archival documents, documents embedded in concrete blocks cast from the interior of the filing cabinet, and a live performance, a naked man hanging his body weight from an industrial haulage strap. And at times, the man replaced with a framed image of the naked artist. Sebastian Henry Jones wrote an essay accompanying the exhibition. And for Kat's journal project, Gabby Stolp wrote Inventory, which you are also hearing now. Two gold rings. A diamond engagement ring, too small for even half of my pinky finger. A sapphire and diamond ring, bought for the occasion of my birth. Worn in clusters with many others, three or four to a finger, across slim hands with talonous fingernails. Perfect for clinking against cups, or additional percussion when striking the keys on the piano, playing I'm in the mood for love. Two Royal Albert teacups with saucers and plates. My choices from an expansive collection. The rarity of their use seemed to indicate their preciousness. Perhaps they would break if you even were to touch them. So don't touch them. They lived high on a shelf with the equally unused dinner set. They now live in a cabinet, safely behind glass. Sebastian Henry Jones writes, Taxonomic systems can only ever create a record of life that doesn't take temporality into account. Operating on the frozen, arrested time of the archives and of institutional thought, the bureaucratic archive is populated by proxies of living things which continue to make their own lives unknown by and outside of the administrative framework. I opened mum's boot of the car and here is like briefcases, like big steel sort of briefcases full of documents. And I'm like, what is this? Again, a court case that she's been carrying around in the boot of the car since like 2002 or something. <laughs> it's like, and not, not being able to let go of those that and and wondering, oh wow, that's a really big part of your identity in some way, is that this happened to you. And the only evidence of that is are these documents. And why are you keeping it? My name is Samara McElroy and I'm an artist, but I also would call myself a a practical archivist. And until recently I was effectively manager of the Office of the State Archivist, which is the regulator for government record keeping in Tasmania. So in that role, I was very deeply embedded in government administration processes. And I guess having a long career in sort of a flipping between art and archives, I've had some opportunity, quite a lot of opportunity to think about. And when I say that, I really do mean deeply think because more and more understanding how rich, situated, 
embodied knowledge can be and what a contribution it can be to the people around you. I met Samara through the Hobart Up community, I think, and we ended up in the same honours cohort and worked together for a really short time at Mona, the Museum of Old and New Art. And I've always enjoyed the thoughtful conversations I've had with Samara. And I knew she'd eventually moved off the gallery floor and into the collection of the back room somehow, getting to work with the things away from the public eye. And then to government archives. I'd always wanted to ask her about it. And this seemed like a great opportunity because I think archives and collections are fascinating. Cathy Carbone talks about the way that artists use archival practices such as collecting, arrangement, description, classification, inventories, and the aesthetics and practical aspects, such as boxes, storage systems, labels and tags. It seems like artists, myself included, are often drawn to the paraphernalia of the museum, those beautiful long pins, the index cards, glass cabinets, dioramas. Carbone mentions that artists also use an additive approach through incorporating the unofficial into the official, blending or juxtaposing personal collections and archives. A handmade hygie doll from a pattern in a much-revered book, Stuffed Dolls from a Fancy World by Kyoko Yonayama. Based on a character from a book I never wanted to read, Haji wears a blue milkmaid's hat and two frizzy plaits. Faceless, her fabric eyes fell off long ago. I had the best of intentions to replace them. One of the key theories is the continuum. In other spaces, it's called a life cycle, but a continuum kind of allows for that constantly becoming and not necessarily knowing what future, future use might be whereas life cycle kind of is birth to death. So I think it's really great because it obviously also takes into account if you're looking at things like, I don't know, a Haraway version of like composting. And so when you dematerialise, and information is dematerialised anyway, it's just that the paper, the filing cabinet, you know, those are great symbols. Um, Really all they are is an organising system. But what you're saying is pre-digital analogue version and actual fact, it was obviously a lot easier to organise. One person could organise that. But when you're talking digital, it gets messy and one person can't organise it. Takes a collaboration, takes, you know, many people. And increasingly when we have this sort of overload of data, it actually now is starting to be AI and machine learning. That's interesting too because there's always this focus on how the digital takes less people to to manage it and less room, but it's just not true. It's total fakery. That's because there's a lot of investment in selling data storage, software, applications, that there's a lot of money to be made. It's a bit of fakery. I sort of had to jump into this bureaucratic nightmare, you know, because mum lives on her own. She had the internet and she loved marketplace, you know, she's that kind of loved to buy bits of China off neighbors and stuff <laughs> um, and still does. And my partner and I would rock up there and just kind of think, 
oh, it's something not quite right. Dog beds were rocking up and it wasn't one dog bed. It was like three dog beds. And it was like, oh, so I started to get a bit worried about her managing money and, and this kind of, and then speaking to doctors and stuff and sort of saying, you know, those kind of impulses are the brain reconnecting. And so some of those pathways and inhibitions and things may have, may have been changed. Anyway, really long story short, she was scammed basically her life savings. And it was really, really full on. She was scammed online and everything about reporting it was online. But you couldn't go to, like, the local police wouldn't deal with it because, like, it's a federal offence, happened overseas. It was an overseas thing. They'd sort of blackmailed her in. I went over there one day and all the blinds were drawn and it was like, why? And she's like, oh, it's hot. And I'm like, mm, it's not hot. Anyway, and then a couple of weeks later, I found out this had happened. My mum banks with a, a tiny little credit union. They know her and she's transferring all of her money out of her account. And there was no question of that. And then the bureaucratic process around that was the one that was just suffocating. It was like, just... Everywhere you turned, it was just a brick wall. And that's part of this work too, is kind of navigating that really tough system. And, you know, if there's no way my, you know, there's no way older people could do this without support. Like my mum wouldn't have been able to fill in an application online for a pension. You know, um, and so looking at those archaic processes of filling in forms compared to filling in digital documents, and how we're talking about technology being opening up and connecting, but it also really shuts out a lot of people and, and opens people up to real, you know, to real in you know in person vulnerabilities that wouldn't necessarily be there. Not everything I keep is looked after immaculately. Two Swarovski crystal animals, a bird and a rabbit, both broken, likely by me, and repaired, sometimes by me, multiple times. The bird missing its left wing and half of its tail. The rabbit missing its left ear, the right one chipped and encrusted with superglue. In Ash's exhibition, the archival documents were deliberately made inaccessible, somewhat destroyed, sort of vandalised with debossed stamps. As I stood in front of the framed documents, my curiosity nearly got the better of me. I wanted to touch it. I wanted to know if the debossing was real, an indent, or print. I wanted to know what was inside the manila folders, tied up with the red ribbon of a legal wreath. I'm a sucker for the stories kept in bits of paper, in hidden boxes and files. Going back to those documents in the frame, I mean, it was kind of like, you know, just, you know, photographically, like there's this, you know, kind of resealing these documents. Like they know they're, they're, these are some documents they've been sealed with legal tape. They're, they're from a filing cabinet. They detail 
you know, kind of banal, but yet necessary information that, you know, you could actually use this information to create an identity. Um, and then it's kind of photographing that removes that one, you know, locks that away one more time. So it's, you know, putting it behind a frame in museum glass, you know, part of that archiving process that you use this kind of glass because the longevity is going to be better. Then it's removed again from being accessible. But before putting it in the glass or behind the glass within the frame, using um, leather punch alphabet sort of stamps to sort of start sort of debossing poetic phrases across them, which may articulate in detail or hint to some of the detail within, within those documents to sort of realign the personal back into those personal documents. So they're not just this kind of baseless story of somebody in government archives which i would have to say uh in australia anyway they're effectively the documents of colonialism effectively still with an extra layer over the top of neoliberalism and new management techniques that the public services sort of adopted so eagerly so you know there's there's this framework that you work in as a government archivist which is very very regulated And the documents themselves can look sort of at first glance, and in fact somebody mentioned it to me, someone extremely senior in government said very grey, which I think they meant boring. Grey as in ambiguous, I think, too. So when an organisation, an agency is finished with them, they have to decide whether or not some of them are really, really important enough to keep and to transfer to our archives. In Tasmania, we have actually quite an incredible situation where the government archive collections and the community archive collections are actually co-located. That is rare in Australia and, in fact, probably around the world. So normally those repositories and or, in fact, community archives are distributed It's usually, you know, a very small proportion of, of the total amount of records that government keeps. And in the paper world, they get put into boxes and then they get catalogued and put on a database. And then eventually, at some point, that data about those records will be made available to the public on the website to search. So that is quite a control process. And when archivists do that, they can, they can very easily sift through and maybe make something they see as sensitive, unavailable for the public. Or sometimes the government department that transfers the records already knows that there's things that they aren't really able to release publicly. So they put a caveat on it to say, no, this needs to be kept hidden for 70 years or whatever. An Avon key-to-my-heart boxed soap, circa 1980. A pink heart-shaped soap, like a locket split in two, with a white key-shaped soap nestled inside. This object kind of doesn't qualify. It's not the original soap, the one I secretly obsessed over. I carefully opened the pink box, trying not to leave a trace of my seemingly criminal presence. Within a foamy plastic pouch and a layer of clear cellophane, 
the soap with its secret treasure perfectly slotted inside. I didn't inherit the original. I found this one at the Penguin Markets when I was in my 20s. The foamy plastic wrapping has been replaced by crude kitchen paper towel and the heart layers are cracked and crumbled. It stinks. I don't remember hating the smell. Maybe I should throw it away. When you're ex- trying to access information through the Freedom of Information Act, you know, a lot of stuff comes back redacted. The stuff that you want to know is <laughs> never provided. Um, you know, so there's a constant frustration in wanting to know and not being allowed to know because of these laws. My mum, she was in and out of an orphanage in the 50s. So I made inquiries to this orphanage and opened up their website, saw that, you know, we're only... Details were only provided to orphans that were in there. And then I realized, oh, wow, this is part of the whole Royal Commission into Systemic Child Abuse. And just, again, this kind of blocking of information where you can't access this on behalf of your mother. She's got a right, you know. So we just used her email address and, and wrote the dates. And then it was like, oh, we can't provide this information at this time. Again, another block because of stuff being under investigation and I find that completely fascinating. (laughs) I think it is that idea that you have the right to know and then then that's denied, that just conjures up something else, cover-ups and, you know, what don't you want me to know? To invoke Cathy Carbone again, artists often use archives to transform through invention or fabrication, for example, to include or expose missing voices, to interrogate dominant power structures, to challenge, to reframe and bear witness. Archives are effectively capturing violence, violence against people, violence against citizens, violence against oppressed people in, in the archival collection. Vern Harris, who is a was an archivist in South Africa who was deeply embedded in the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa, which was absolutely an extraordinary process of mediated truth-telling to allow a country to not exactly heal, but at least come to some point whether they could move forward. Anyway, his visit was one of those moments in the Australian archival profession where we sort of understood how much trauma we'd all been sort of collectively accumulating over the years. And that has really allowed archivists themselves to recognise there's a whole kind of care ethic missing and they're trying to put it back in. Of course, the archive doesn't just represent the worst aspects of human existence. Collections and archives often represent great joy, nostalgia, family connections, memories, collective and individual. But the archive is also subjective, and it's built as a means to edify and sustain certain cultural and societal narratives. To paraphrase Sarah Ahmed, to orientate towards objects that are good and push what is not to the edges. As Samara notes, the archivist has great power in this way, and as does the artist, but both are constrained by the dominant modes of recording, keeping, governance, and power dynamics. Post-Sydney Olympics, I was working in the warehouse at the Sydney Olympic Park, and we just had to sort through, open up each box with the files in it and have a look at them. 
And there's what you would call a retention disposal schedule, which has been prepared earlier based on a sort of an analysis of the kind of records and business activities the government agency undertakes. So we had to make a decision. It's a human decision. Is that a really, really important file needs to go to the archives or is that a file that's reached the end of its useful life for people um, and can be destroyed? And there was just one one file in there that had a document on it and I actually can't even really remember what the document was about but it was a sort of a dissenting document that just didn't fit in the rest of the file and it was about somebody kind of questioning a decision that had been made because I don't know if, if you remember but the Sydney Olympic Park was basically a heavily polluted post-industrial site that they remediated. And it costs millions and millions of dollars. The Olympics cost millions and millions of dollars. And so there was an enormous amount of accountability required from the public because of the amount of public money being spent. So I was looking through the boxes and there was this letter from somebody who was questioning one of the processes around this remediation of, I can't even remember, but it, it got turned into some public sculpture. You know, there was a lot, of, there's always a lot of public sculptures chucked into a big government infrastructure project. Uh, just to make it, you know, give it its social license. Um, and, and and unfortunately for me, I was like, I, I said, because I had a mentor and a trainer next to me and she was a much older, well-trained archivist. And, and I said, look, I'd really like to send this, you know, letter to the archives. I think it'd be really useful if somebody could, you know, find it, discover it in this file, you know, 20 years in the future when she said, oh, yeah, but it's on that file and that file's not permanent, so you can't. So I kind of had to let it go. That was really quite a, that was quite a, I think, quite an important moment for me to understand that pragmatic decisions are made. And the same job, and this is just try and imagine the scale of this warehouse full of boxes, full of files. I used to retrieve the records that were all about the event, you know, because it was a big opening event, the Sydney Olympics, massive. And once I was asked to retrieve the box, which was, I can't remember who the um, so-called, I can't remember his name, he's quite famous anyway. He got obviously paid a huge amount of money to put on this Sydney Olympics. But he, when I opened the box, which was supposed to have his records in it, which were supposed to go to the archives, there was nothing in there. So clearly as a um, person who created art and, you know, who's, 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 um, record of whatever they were doing was important. He just decided to take them with him. A grey shell necklace, 80s style. Slices of shells cupped together along a thread so the pearlescent sides face inwards. To be wrapped around a black turtleneck skivvy after back combing and hairspraying a Robert Smith-esque tease into a perfectly placed, unshifting bob. A silk scarf. Patterned in red and black geometry. A photograph of the scarf, worn. A familiar pose, chin tilted, tilted upward and hand casually folded inward against the side of the lower jaw. I've tried to wear the scarf. I put it on and move it around. I tilt my chin upward and I take it off again. A black leather handbag, softly worn, ghostily scented with musk lollies and Horizon Ultra Milds. 
a pair of gold-coloured embroidery scissors in a hand-sewn cream silk case. The scissors shaped like a rooster with sharply pointed blades for its crown and the round handles an extension of its talons. Plated in something gold-coloured, this has been rubbed back all around the handles. The case is scuffed and worn, embellished with cream lace, ribbon roses and plastic pearl and gold beads. It hangs from a goldish chain over the brass knob of my bed head, just in case I need to snip any stray threads while I sleep. Some 23 years ago, archivist and academic Elizabeth Kaplan stated in an essay for the American Archivist Journal that archivists are major players in the business of identity, whether they are conscious of it or not. She writes, and I quote, archivists appraise, collect and preserve the props with which notions of identity are built. In turn, notions of identity are confirmed and justified as historical documents validate their authority. Well, I think it sort of goes back to that idea, you know, identity politics. And as a queer guy in the 90s, and the private had to become public in some way to be visible, to have a position, not to be invisible, not to be underground constantly. I grew up in a small town, northeast Victoria, got on the bus as soon as I could at the age of 17 to go to art school. My art teacher like, just get on the bus and get out of there. It's really interesting that I come back 30 years Later, I do a workshop series with a group of LGBTQIA plus youth, and it's the same story. You know, it's still the same story that there's this acceptance, but it's not, it's a tolerance. And that's a real difference, a difference, because if you scratch that veneer of tolerance, you just get down to deep-seated unacceptance, you know? And I guess, so that public and private is, there's a a violence and a peace in that in some way too because the reaction to of other to you can either be a violent encounter or a peaceful encounter and everything in between as well and i guess that's kind of where my work's within that tension definitely but you know um what happens if i do this in public what happens if i don't do this in public A hand-sewn and embroidered silk bedspread. Custom-made to fit a cast-iron bed frame slept upon for four generations. Don't fret, the mattress is new. A bolt of raw silk travelled from India to be quilted into nine squares. Within each square is a detailed candlewick embroidery of ecru cotton with the subtlest accents of pink, yellow and pastel green. Much like the teacups, this feels too precious to use. I placed it on the bed for the 14th anniversary, running my hands over tiny knotted stitches, landing upon a stitched signature, dated 1998. I was 14. I have been thinking a lot about what I will leave behind. It's hard not to when you are confronted with the task of sorting through lifetimes of collected objects. At once I have this urge to be rid of everything, to release every unnecessary receipt, book, photo. But also, then will my children simply be sorting through several one terabyte hard drives filled with invoices, photos, and the funniest memes from social media 2010 to 2025? I think I'd rather them deal with actual detritus. I think that 
people are still scrambling to kind of try and fix some of the issues that came about with that sort of early kind of zest for digitization. The trouble is the investment in the underlying systems that are holding all of that information now has, hasn't really been kept up. So there's an enormous amount of sort of leaking sort of festering sores in the, in the technical infrastructure. <laughs> and, you know, as we, as we become bigger, bigger government and bigger government doing more, but providing citizen-centric services, but actually the infrastructures, the ontologies, the taxonomies, all of the things that government has that are holding our information actually weren't designed for that kind of service. So there's just, there's an enormous amount of sort of layering now. So complexity, complexity everywhere has meant that those sort of, um, the digital is really confusing and messy. So yeah, there's absolutely value in physical archives. And I guess for me, what I see is an opportunity because what I would call, and maybe others, maybe it's out there, it's a word that's Googleable, I'm not sure, but information asymmetry. So that the, the power relate imbalance becomes clearer the more more this is happening. Um, and you have this feeling of this sort of you're working, you know, against this monumental force as an individual. And so I actually think that sometimes there's value in citizens, groups, communities, grassroots, kind of starting to assemble their own archives to kind of balance up that asymmetry. Sarah Ahmed writes, We are moved by things, and in being moved we make things. To experience an object as being effective or sensational is to be directed not only towards an object, but to whatever is around that object, which includes what is behind the object, the conditions of its arrival. A bottle of Estee Lauder owed a private collection's spray, about two-thirds full. The smell of it envelops me, at once winded with a kick in the sternum and held in an expansive, time and dimension travelling embrace. My brain feels again like it's bursting through my skull and my head is full of black and stars. A bottle of Estee Lauder beautiful eau de parfum spray, almost full, perhaps unused. An unfinished embroidery. A central circle filled with colourful embroidered flowers ensconced by eight smaller circles. Each small circle with a central posy surrounded by pencil-lined circles. Softly sketched into the surface of the fabric, the circles indicate the placement of intended stitches. Some completed, some not even begun. It is stilled in a frame like a clock, forever stopped at nine. Nine o'clock, somewhere around the time of death. Immediately after, I carefully administered a needle into the right lower abdomen. Medicine to dry up salivary secretions, in the hope of gentling and quieting the remaining few breaths. A lock of short grey hair, tied in a pink ribbon, quickly and ungraciously contained in a brown craft paper box. I almost didn't get this. I phoned and requested it at the last minute. They suggested I didn't view the body. It would have deteriorated too much. 
especially considering it lay in the bedroom overnight, so we could all say goodbye, and so I could say hello and happy birthday to myself the next morning. A letter. Handwritten on Baroque-styled cherub-patterned paper. Heartfelt, knowing, extraordinarily difficult to look at. A gold locket, a replacement for the wedding ring lost whilst bushwalking a week after the death. The ring might now dwell at the bottom of a tarn or brightly adorn the wrist of a paddy melon. The locket holds two pictures, grainy slivers of memories to be carried around and held preciously. This is What Are You Looking At? A podcast produced and hosted by me, Pip Stafford, for Contemporary Art Tasmania. The voices and stories you heard on this episode were generously provided by Ash, Samara McElroy and Gabby Stoll. You can read more about Ash's exhibition, This Too Shall Pass, on the Contemporary Art Tasmania website. There you can also read Gabby Stolp's Inventory and Sebastian Henry Jones's Bee Theory, both written in response to Ash's work. The music for this podcast is from Blue Dot Sessions. The text I have referenced in this episode, Sarah Ahmed, Kathy Carbone and Elizabeth Kaplan are cited in the show notes if you want to read more. You can listen to the full archive of What Are You Looking At at the CAT website, contemporaryarttasmania.org. What Are You Looking At is available on all good podcast apps, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Like, subscribe and or email me your comments and thoughts, pip at contemporaryart.org.